New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. May of 1945 saw the lights go on again. Once more, the nation's capital was blazing in all its glory. And in cities throughout the nation, the blackout was ended. Germany had surrendered. The war in Europe was over. There was still a war to be fought to a finish in the Pacific. But that couldn't dim the celebration that marked the fall of Hitler and the end of his dreams of world conquest. Three months later, crowds gather in front of the White House, awaiting the announcement of Japan's surrender from President Harry S. Truman. It took two atomic bombs to bring Japan to her knees. But now Pearl Harbor was avenged, and the news triggered the greatest celebration the nation has ever known. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. In this episode, our time machine travels back to 1941, where we'll find ourselves at the bleeding borders of the Third Reich, as it nears the peak of its power in a darkened Europe. As the year unfolds, we watch Hitler's miscalculations, deteriorating mental state, and policy of industrialized terror give the United Kingdom, his lone opposition in Europe, a powerful new ally, driving the USSR into Prime Minister Winston Churchill's waiting arms. It's commonly stated in shorthand that the decision to invade the Soviet Union led to Germany's destruction. But the Axis powers still had plenty of chances to knock out their former peace pact partner, Joseph Stalin, and emerge victorious. We also hear that in 1941, Hitler implemented his infamous final solution, marching steadily towards the Holocaust and using resources that might have gone to the war effort. How much did that impact the Wehrmacht stalling outside Moscow. Plus, this is the year that Berlin followed Imperial Japan's declaration of war on the United States with one of its own, bringing the arsenal of democracy into the fight against them. Moves like these didn't just seal National Socialism's fate. They sowed the seeds of the post-war shattering of the Big Three's alliance that led to the 50-year Cold War chill a legacy of distrust and resentment that lingers to this day. Yet focusing just on these big events alone denies us a full accounting of the war's human toll and a complete understanding of its lessons for our world today. Joining us with the full picture we always seek on the History Author Show is veteran author and foreign correspondent Andrew Nagorski. He gives us a full picture of these key 12 months of the 20th century in his new book, The Year Germany Lost the War, 1941. We last heard from Andrew Nagorski in our chat about his book, The Nazi Hunters, 
a conversation you can find on the page for this episode at historyauthor.com or on iTunes, our iHeartRadio channel, or wherever you're listening now. Find our guests online at andrewnagorski.com and andrewnagorski on Twitter, where you can learn more about the book he'll be chatting about today and The Nazi Hunters, as well as his other books, including Hitlerland, American Eyewitnesses to the Nazi Rise to Power. Okay, now that we've arrived at the end of the beginning of the Second World War, let's join Andrew Nagorski and live through The Year Germany Lost the War, 1941. joined on the line by Andrew Nagorski, author of The Year Germany Lost the War, 1941. Welcome back to the History Author Show. Thanks very much, Dean. Delighted to be back on the show. Enjoyed your book. I tore right through it. I got the paperback advanced copy, and sometimes I like to wait for the later ones so I can see if there's illustrations, things will be improved. There's an index, which I love, but I just hit it right away and dug into the year Germany lost the war. I'd like to start where your book ends. You write, quote, The first stage of writing a book is a bit like trying to put together a complex jigsaw puzzle. Now, you can't imagine a more complex and sweeping giant puzzle than World War II. I don't know if you remember the game Axis and Allies, but we used to play that in high school or try to. actually played it with one of our music teachers, Mr. Vernalikin, and it was impossible just to finish the game, much less try to study afterwards an entire event of the actual war, the whole sweeping actual war itself. And here you go beyond this shorthand version of the war's timeline, and that is... Hitler betrays his pact with Stalin, he invades the USSR, and that deals the first stab that's a mortal blow, and then he follows Japan and he declares war on the U.S. when they attack Pearl Harbor, and then we can start to get ready to roll the credits. What prompted you to write this book that tells us as readers who are interested in the war that they might have one piece or even several pieces of the puzzle when they think of those two events, but that they needed many more before they could have an accurate picture of this year in the war and Hitler's ultimate failure. Well, I mean, the jigsaw puzzle analogy is maybe maybe because now you remember, I remember with my kids how you threw out those puzzles sometimes and, and you said, how are you ever going to put it together? I, I say often when I'm talking about my writing of books, and I think many authors feel this way, it's not only a puzzle if you've been doing a lot of reporting and research and interviews and work in archives and finding survivors and and other source materials you've got these scattered pieces from your previous books where i talked about the rise of hitler about the battle for moscow about the, the holocaust but you're also not sure what pieces you're missing all together so it becomes a doubly difficult thing to do but i think what struck me when I was beginning to think about this project was just how dramatically different the world looked at the beginning of 1941 and at the end of 1941. 
you have the war which goes on, which started in 39, doesn't end till 45. And yet this is the pivotal year, I think, for any number of reasons. But first of all, if you remember, of course, in beginning of 41, Hitler's army still basically controlled all of the continent, almost all of continental Europe, minus Russia. But Russia was on the sidelines. And in fact, was Stalin was supplying Hitler with all sorts of materials for his war efforts under the terms of the Nazi-Soviet pact. The U.S. was still on the sidelines, even if Roosevelt was very sympathetic to the British plight. Britain was fighting alone. It was the sole holdout. And Japan was still out there, but not directly confronting either uh, the U.S. And so you had all of this where Hitler seemed unstoppable. Even his own generals and his own advisors had told him every time he made a move, whether it was against Czechoslovakia, whether it was against Poland, whether it was against France, that you're taking a huge risk. And every time the risk seemed to pay off. And so he firmly believed, and many other people believed, that basically his Third Reich was unstoppable at that point. At the end of 1941, as he pointed out, there is a very different situation. Suddenly you have Hitler's Germany at war basically with the whole world against not only Britain, but the United States, the Soviet Union. And even though Japan has entered the war and is now an ally of Germany, the odds, when you look at the odds of, of that, those lineups, have shifted dramatically. So I wanted to explore what were the pieces that went into this puzzle, aside from the obvious ones as the invasion of the Soviet Union, but all the intricacies of that, right up through Pearl Harbor, and the relationship between these four key players, Hitler, Stalin, Roosevelt, Churchill, and a whole cast of supporting characters, some of whom are known, some of whom, whom are largely forgotten to history and whose stories I try to recreate in this book. And in each case, I'm trying to present history as it felt to the people at the time rather than history in retrospect and just how dramatic these events were and this shifting tide of events. As you are reading other things about the war, it's so easy just to assume, well, Hitler was always destined to lose, that he always made every bad decision possible. And because when you have someone you revile, you never think of them as winning. Or if you do, it's in it's in fear and revulsion. And so we still think kind of like those Looney Tunes and Disney cartoons that they did mocking Hitler and thinking, well, he was always destined to lose. He was always eventually going to screw himself, so so to speak. So why did he have to drag us over here, as they say in Band of Brothers, to fight them? But it's certainly not as you go through 1941, you start the year and you realize why when the U.S. finally does get into the war that Churchill says he finally sleeps well for the first time because he's he knows now victory is not in doubt. But it's still a touch-and-go thing. And I think that because we looked at Hitler that way, one of these four players that's on the cover of the year Germany lost the war, we assume he never had a chance and that he blundered. But you can see throughout your book where he was rewarded for his risk-taking, for his acting fast. And it makes much more sense than I've seen it elsewhere why 
he does these things that in retrospect we say total mistake, mistake just to invade the Soviet Union. But it, it's not that simple. It is that he invades them, but it's the way that he does it because he comes really close. It's one thing to say 12 miles outside Moscow, but uh, quite another to see what you talk about here where there are many of what you call those pivotal moments, actions, and decisions that produce the outcomes we take for granted. I loved reading about that because I want to check my own thinking and, and really get the full picture of why every invasion is different. You could play that Axis and Allies a hundred times to go back to the board game. You know you'll screw it up sometimes, but sometimes you might knock them out. So which of those times, which of those things that readers skip through that other books maybe just give a line to, thinking they already know the story, do you think your readers, knowing them as you do, will find most illuminating when they pick up the year Germany lost the war? Well, I think there's several things throughout, but one of the things that struck me was in that popular narrative, which we know so well, Hitler has his first victories, then Britain is alone. Uh, you have the Battle of Britain where the Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, tries to knock out the Royal Air Force and Allied planes. They fail. That's in 1940. That's their first setback. But still, Britain is being pounded by German bombers. You have the war in the North Atlantic. You have German activity in the Balkans, the war in North Africa heating and beginning to heat up. And the image we have is of Churchill and movies and so forth, never having any doubts. Well, the fact is, you'll see in the year Germany lost the war, Churchill himself, while he never wavered publicly, and that was key, he had definite moments of doubt. When he took over the job of prime minister at, at that critical time when France fell, and then throughout, in his memoirs, he has this revealing line Churchill wrote, Looking back upon the unceasing tumult of the war, I cannot recall any period when its stresses and the onset of so many problems all at once in rapid succession bore more directly on me and my colleagues than the first half of 1941. In other words, that was the most difficult moment of the war for him and for Britain. And he adds that no part of our problem in 1941 could be solved with, with relate, without relation to all the rest. That means the Blitz, that means the war in the Atlantic, the threats uh, in the Balkans and everywhere else. So he was much more aware and feeling more vulnerable than he let on in public. And one of the fascinating thing I found was that, say, many of the Americans in Britain who were there very supportive of the war effort, the ones who were very, unlike Joe Kennedy, who had been the U.S. ambassador and was a very much a defeatist and thought Britain would fall. Even those people who were advocating for Britain, for U.S. support for Britain, shared some of those doubts on, in many moments. But again, they never wanted to reveal it. So that on one side of the equation, you've got that. On the other side of the equation, you have the Soviet Union nearly collapsing when Germany attacks. And not only do German troops drive to the outskirts of Moscow, but in October of 41, on October 16th to be exact, there's near panic in Moscow when they think the Germans are about to break through. And at that time, there are strikes and looting and there and there's burning of communist literature and and uh, all the kind of kinds of things, the symbols of the regime. 
as things were unimaginable in Stalin's Russia. And all of that was hushed up by the Soviet historians for a long time. So you have these, these moments where it looked like things could implode on both sides. And it was a much closer thing than most people realize looking at that standard narrative that you pointed out, which we often go with the shorthand of those events. One of the things in reading this, you mentioned preconceived notions and everything seems as if it has to happen like a movie. Well, of course, that's what happened. Of course, the Battle of Britain is lost by the Germans and won by the British. But even making a mistake is not as costly if your opponent fails to exploit it. So it is a touch and go thing. It is something where if the right counter moves aren't made, then maybe Hitler is able to recover and not make the next bad decision. The thing is, he never seems to change throughout the course of the book, whereas of, of all people, here, here's another uh, bloodthirsty dictator that you have a hard time saying something nice about. And so I think that's why maybe we don't read about it. You put it in the year Germany lost the war that at times it appeared that the two men were competing for the title of the world's most willfully blind dictator. And I thought about that. And I, as I read the rest of the book, it put it in perspective. And then I hear I see Stalin is the one who, despite falling into a depression of his own, as the Germans are closing in and he thinks they're there to throw him out when they come in and they want him to actually address the people. He's making other people do it. How does Stalin lose that contest to Hitler as the world's most willfully blind dictator and therefore win the war after the Nazi-Soviet non-aggression pact is violated? Yes, I mean, and actually I have to say my original line in the book was not the most willfully blind. I said the most stupid dictator. And then I thought, <laughs> well, maybe that's putting it a little bit too bluntly. But uh, the idea was... Yeah, both of these men who were seen as geniuses in their own countries, and, and God forbid if anyone should question that, Stalin was being warned left and right by his own spies, by the West, everybody else, that Hitler was about to break the terms of the pact and go ahead and attack the Soviet Union. He did not want to believe that. And in his conspiratorial mind, if all these people are telling him these things, it must be a conspiracy to lure him into the war. And he did not even allow his troops to go on, on to alert until the very last minute. The Soviet Air Force had its planes lined up in the Western Soviet Union on airfields wide out in the open. It, they made perfect targets for the Luftwaffe when they came in. They paid the price for it, and they didn't even have enough arms so that many Red Army troops were sent into battle without, with sometimes in, in some cases with, say, one rifle for 10 men, and nine people would be trailing the one guy with a rifle and told when that guy gets shot, the next next person is supposed to pick up the rifle. Yeah. Quite a way to yeah. fight a war. <laughs> so all that happens. And at first, the German army makes huge gains, goes rushing through large, large parts of the Soviet Union and towards Moscow. But Hitler's two fatal mistakes is one, when they're already, Moscow seems within his reach, and his generals are telling him, go for Moscow. That's the jugular. That's the most important target. Hitler begins to waver. It's almost as if the ghost of Napoleon who took Moscow and then saw it burn and then had to retreat and defeat is haunting him. And he also suddenly says, oh, what, but Ukraine 
Kiev is much more important because that's the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. That's going to, what's going to supply us with all the goods we need. And he'd insist on diverting his troops to the south first, and that delays the attack on Moscow until the weather begins to change, first in the autumn uh, rain, and which turns uh, Soviet roads into mud and really slows down the assault, and then a really freezing winter even by Russian standards. So all of these, you know, there are tactical mistakes. And then the other tactical mistake, which aside from morality aside, of course, is that Hitler believes he doesn't have to do anything to get Russians on his side or Soviet citizens on his side. In fact, he continues the policy of terror that he started in occupied Poland and immediately goes into the Soviet Union with a policy of terror partly against the Jews. It's the beginning of the, of the Holocaust. It's the Holocaust of the bullets as opposed to the Holocaust of the gas because gas chambers are not yet functioning the way they would later. But with these special killing squads that would just line up people and shoot them. But not just Jews. The idea was to terrorize the whole population, including many Soviet POWs, many Red Army troops would turn themselves in. They see the overwhelming odds. And there were some parts of the Western Soviet Union, some villages and towns that welcomed the invaders, not because they loved Hitler or the Nazis. They didn't know much about Hitler or the Nazis, but because they had been terrorized by Stalin for so, and starved and beaten and tortured by Stalin's henchmen for so long. And if Hitler had even said cynically, we will pretend to be liberating these people rather than terrorizing them, at least initially, that could have garnered an awful lot of support. But he provided Stalin was the best possible propaganda by showing that my terror is even worse than your terror right now. And your only chance for survival is you better fight us because if you surrender, you're likely to be killed anyway. That's another one of the bits of conventional wisdom about the Nazis, not just shooting people there, but you mentioned that this is the beginning of the Holocaust, the Holocaust of the gun, not yet the gas chambers. But we hear a lot that Hitler wasted resources on the Holocaust. For instance, those train cars that could have been used to bring resources to the east when he needs to be able to fight the Soviets, try to make that last push. Maybe some warm clothes would have come in handy. But no, we're using the train cars and the resources to slaughter people. And he's moving up his timetable. Always, he never seems to consolidate. And I guess that's part of it. He's not going to wait to achieve the dreams that he laid out in Mein Kampf. He's going to kill everybody there now and, and move the Germans into the layman's realm, into the living space that he wants for his future Germany. What will readers of the year Germany lost the war learn about that long-sighted view of the Axis defeat that Hitler put resources into the Holocaust and terror for the occupied countries that he could have better used for the war? Well, there's a big debate on that among Holocaust historians, how big a factor that was. You can find people on both sides. But for me, it's very revealing. I quote the diary of one of the top German generals, Marshal Feder von Bock, who was leading Army Group Center, that main army group that was supposed to take Moscow. And when things began to go badly in December of 41, for the German invaders. They were overextended. They were freezing. As you say, 
they they had invaded the Soviet Union even without the winter uniforms because Hitler was so convinced it would be a quick, easy victory. You know, we don't have to worry about winter uniforms for our troops. They're overextended. And then Feder von Bock, at one point in, in the beginning of December, he hears about new train loads of Jews coming into the rear areas of his army group. They are being deported from places further west, obviously, to be executed. And he's saying, you can't do this. We need this for our supplies, for our clothing, food. We're already short, so short-changed. He wasn't talking morality here. Just as a practical matter, he said, this is crazy. <laughs> so I think this had to be a factor. Whether it was the decisive factor, I think many people would dispute because people will say, yeah, many historians will say, even though thousands of train cars were caught up in, in the deportation of Jews, it was still a tiny fraction of the total of the German experience. But I think more important also psychologically was that the beginning of the Holocaust helped reinforce the message to all German troops that this is a war of annihilation. This is a war of terror. And if we can tolerate this, other acts of terror against, say, Soviet POWs, Soviet civilians, whether they were Jewish or not Jewish, are all not only tolerated, but in fact encouraged. And that hardens the resistance to the invaders. And also remember that Soviet Union had far more people and a far more bigger pool of manpower. Stalin had a far bigger pool of manpower to draw on. The longer the war went on, the more those advantages of a bigger manpower pool and greater economic resources, especially when the U.S. came in, are going to be factors. But Hitler's attitude in the from the very beginning seemed to be, it's not going to matter because we're going to win quickly. And once that did not happen, he each time was thinking, ah, here's another step we can do to win quickly. So just like he attacked Britain, thinking if we attack Britain and, and Britain collapses, then we'll be able to turn against the Soviet Union. It will be on its own and will easily defeat the Soviet Union. When Britain doesn't collapse, he says, OK, we'll attack the Soviet Union, because when the Soviet Union collapses, then Britain will be on its own. I mean, everything has a rationale in his mind, in his mind, but it's a crazy rationale. And even when Japan attacks Har Pearl Harbor, he convinces himself, wow, this is great. We'll now have Japan on our side, which will tie down the U.S. and the Pacific, so they won't be able to help Britain or the Soviet Union. And he actually declares war on the, on, on the United States before the U.S. declares war on, on Germany. Remember, when Pearl Harbor happens— the U.S. declares war on Japan, but on December 8th, the U.S. is still at, is only at war with Japan, technically, not with Germany yet, and Churchill still is waiting for that next step, and Hitler provides it rather than Roosevelt. It always does have a rationale. You mentioned that in the year Germany lost the war. You say that to outsiders and even Hitler's inner circle, his actions often looked like lunacy, but that quote, a deranged monster theory hardly provides adequate explanation for the fateful course he charted. There are some of those mistakes that we interpret as being insane, literally insane, we say invading the Soviet Union. But even as you're laying it out here, the tactical situation, it does seem logical even to us. And you could see how with Hitler, 
people forget he he goes into France, he knocks out France. Nobody sees that happening. In Poland, I think we talked about this when we talked about the Nazi hunters, about this insidious and it seems zombie-like Nazi propaganda that the Poles fell quickly. Hitler convinces himself of that, and unfortunately he's he's done a pretty good job of convincing posterity for many years of that. But as you know better than I do, Poland puts up a stiff fight against the Nazis and the Soviets, and it really bloodies Hitler's nose. But he doesn't allow himself to think that, and he thinks, I knocked out the great France. Everyone's been telling me no. All these all these Prussian generals who went to the fancy schools, they don't know what, what to tell me. So they've been wrong all along, and so he keeps doing the same thing and doesn't adjust the way that Stalin does. I wanted to ask you to give us one mistake that Hitler made because he interpreted the tactical situation in a way that does seem logical in light of all of that, but it's entirely different from the advice he's getting, and so therefore we look at it as just being he was crazy. Well, I think in tactical terms, just what I mentioned was the when they had a chance, they in July of 41, when his general said, go, knock out Moscow, there was a chance to do that before the weather turned. Everybody was conscious of the Napoleon's example of being out there exposed to the Russian winter and trying to supply your troops. And if he had gone straight ahead, as General Guderian, his, one of his famous generals and, and others were arguing, I think there was a good chance they did take, would have taken Moscow. Whether that would have been enough to win the war is one thing. It would have been enough, certainly, to make the war even longer than it was. So that was one tactical mistake. Another was this mistake of terrorizing the local population and thinking he was going to get away with it. And it, I talked to Benjamin Ferenz, if you remember from the Nazi hunters. He was the last U.S. He's the last surviving. U.S. prosecutor from Nuremberg. He's, he's 99 years old now, and I was telling him about this project. He said, well, you know what? Hitler's calculation was that we didn't need the manpower that slave labor on a big scale would provide. We could just kill the Jews and, and others who we considered subhuman because we were going to win the war so quickly. So he ignored all this advice, and despite that, it was a long war in which the the disadvantages of the German situation became more and more evident, but it took a tremendous push by the Soviet Union, by the United States, by Britain to win this war. So he came closer to victory for a while than most people thought possible. I mentioned your Polish roots, so it leads me to my question about your family connections to the war, which, as we talked about last time that we got together, it's something that links us back to it. When you can look at a family member, an ancestor, and feel some connection. For you, you mentioned your grandfather, Zygmunt Nagorski. I hope I got his name right. Yes, you did. <laughs> Great. <laughs> I'm surprisingly good with Polish. It must be all the letters <laughs> that Greeks have. Right. <laughs> I spoke at the Kaskusko. I was invited there by Eva Stachniak to host an event for her book, The Chosen Maiden. And I 
asked when I started out speaking to this mostly Polish audience and Polish American audience, I said, raise your hand if you've ever misspelled your own name. <laughs> so I think that's something that we have in common, especially doing the SATs or something. Right. So you have your grandfather. He's your connection to the war, your personal connection. How did his experience during the war inform your perspective of 1941? It's actually my grandfather and my parents, because when my parents got married in 38 and my father was called up in 39 and fought in a Polish tank unit against German panzers. They were totally outgunned, of course. They had old French World War I tanks that had a maximum speed of five miles per hour. So you can imagine it was Gosh. a short battle. And then when he was supposed to turn, he and his, uh, his colleagues were supposed to turn themselves into POW camps or risk being shot, he decided to try to escape with a buddy, and they eventually escaped, mostly on foot, jumping trains, all that sort of stuff the south through Yugoslavia, getting to France. And my grandfather, who was active, he was a lawyer, who was active in political circles, was part of a group with my grandmother and my mother, by the way, who got out fairly early in the occupation because they were already thinking, we've got to form a government in exile. And they got to France. And then when France fell, as we, as everyone's seen in movies like Dunkirk and so forth, there was evacuations, not just of British and French troops, but also of Polish troops, including my father's unit that had regrouped in France. He eventually served in a Polish unit in, based in Scotland, a paratrooper unit, then went back on the continent later. And my grandfather was in the Polish government in exile during this, all of this period. So when I was growing up after the war, you know, I heard these stories. As a kid, of course, you absorb some of it, not all of it. But again, these were bits and pieces of the puzzle. And I remember particularly my grandparents and my mother, who was back and forth between Scotland and London, where my grandparents were telling me about the bombings in London and the whole atmosphere of that era. And I, I met people from, who had been part of the Polish underground couriers who had gotten out to the West, try to warn the West what was happening in Poland to the underground, to the Jewish population of Poland. And so it inevitably makes it real and not so distant. And it makes it, you realize these are all stories. These are living stories. They are part of our heritage. And they have also shaped the world we have today. And as I got older I, and studied history and began writing about history, even as a journalist at every opportunity and then writing books, I just realized, get as many of these living testimonies as you can. And luckily, over the years, I had interviewed many people, some of whom are, like, say, Soviet veterans of 1941, whose interviews I could still use in this book. And incidentally, I even found writing this book, there were still some people I could interview who I hadn't caught up with before. In a place like Minneapolis, there are quite a few, there's a fairly large Russian exile community, and I found several veterans of 1941 who could tell me stories, most of them Russian, but also one German uh, soldier who had been a soldier, a very young soldier on the outskirts of Moscow. So I feel it's sort of the last moment to collect the firsthand testimonies. And then there are more and more documentation of collections of diaries and memoirs that come out, which help really create this whole story. 
it's something is when you said that about your grandfather, I thought you're lucky to be here. And then you talk about. Being oh, here. yes. You know where, what I particularly find lucky to be here. My dad, when he was in Scotland, he was in a part of a para, Polish paratrooper unit. If you've seen the movie A Bridge Too Far in the Battle for Arnhem, the Brits dropped this Polish unit basically into a German machine gun nest. And many uh, of his friends were killed then. He did not make the drop that day. Wow. If he had, I'm not sure we'd be talking right now. I found a website where you can go and look in the Blitz where the bombs fell in London. And I found where my mom lived at the time and her, her father, my grandfather with their restaurant. And she had two brothers in the RAF. And I looked at it on the map and there's maybe five or six bombs that are right around this building. That puts it in perspective. One Luftwaffe pilot lets his hand go a second or even a split second earlier and it lands right on our house. Those are the stories that bring it home and it's why it's important to study it and read about it. Right. I have also mined the diary of this U.S. military attache who was in Britain at the time. And he had this phrase at one point. He was going about London and he said, if there's ever a time in life to wear basically your life as a loose garment. In other words, <laughs> just go for it. You know, hope, you know, fate spares you. This is it. He didn't want to show fear. He didn't want to show that he was trying to avoid anything. But he knew that at any moment, he could be blown to pieces. You're enjoying my conversation with Andrew Nagorski, author of The Year Germany Lost the War, 1941. You can find him online at andrewnagorski.com or at andrewnagorski on Twitter. And I noticed he has a brand new Twitter banner there. And so he's going to be putting up some new things on the book, I would assume. It's always nice to see an author update the Twitter page. I like to think of that as being one of the last things after all this solitary hard work and doing all these interviews with people. So that always tells me, hey, it's time to get excited well, for the book. Yes, that's one of the things I try to remember to do. But it is hard sometimes <laughs> when you've been in this long march and then say, OK, and then there's the Twitter page. And then another thing you do is you start to give it to people like myself. I'm fortunate enough to be one of them. Another person who's read the book before it came out and gave a nice blurb is Douglas Brinkley, author of American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. He writes, quote, Andrew Nagorski's The Year Germany Lost the War is a seamlessly written and well-researched investigation at how Hitler bungled his geopolitical playing hand in 1941, thereby sinking the Third Reich before America even entered World War II. There is never a dull moment or a lull in this fast-paced narrative. Andrew, that phrase that jumped out at me from Douglas Brickley's review is how Hitler bungled his geopolitical hand in 1941. He does seem like a gambler who has been rewarded so often at that slot machine or at the poker table that he doesn't know when to fold them, as Kenny Rogers might say. I bet it all before and I won, so I'm just going to keep betting it all, even when he doesn't have any resources left to bet. He has nothing left to push into the middle of the table. I mentioned Axis and Allies before as a board game. As I'm reading The Year Hitler Lost the War, I thought of comedian Eddie Izzard, who says the German dictator never played Risk as a kid. Asia, it's right there. You want to invade Russia, you take it, you get eight armies at the beginning of every go, but you can never quite hold it. Now, obviously, as readers, we have no interest in seeing the Nazis triumph, but 
your title is the year Germany lost the war. So had Hitler been removed on January 1st, 1941, he got a hold of some bad strudel and he died, could his generals have executed a vision for victory that he failed to? That's a really interesting question because, I mean, there's so many what-ifs with Hitler's life from the beginning of, yeah. what if he'd been admitted to art school instead of <laughs> instead of being uh, rejected? What if he had been blinded permanently in World War One instead of just temporarily? But the question by January of 41, I think there's a good chance, I think, without Hitler, Hitler had his, as an article of faith ever since Mein Kampf that he has to conquer the East, which meant the Soviet Union primarily, that this was Lebensraum, the room for expansion and colonization. But if he had disappeared from the scene in the beginning of 41, I'm not sure his generals would have felt the same way. And one of the things I recount in the book is how he again and again explains his rationale for doing this and why this is a great move and his generals are at first quite skeptical, and some of them are trying to point out the difficulties and, and the odds. And yet, because he's done so well before, despite their misgivings, they back down. Without his relentless push for it, I think there's a good chance that Germany would not have invaded the Soviet Union. And if that were the case, it's still master of most of continental Europe. And I think it might have remained that way for quite a long time, because without that, the war could have gone on a very long time. Britain would still be fighting. Would the U.S. have been gotten involved in the war? That's another question. Would Japan still have attacked Pearl Harbor? All those questions are open. But at the very least, I think Germany would have held on to its gains probably a lot longer than it was able to because of, as you say, Hitler's upping the ante every time. His instinct every time was to go, okay, we went for broke before, that didn't work. We're going to go for even more broke, to put it inelegantly, this time. And many of his own people were not that keen on it. Again, not because of morality, not because of all the, you know, the right, what we consider the right reasons, but just being practical about it. Speaking of roots, as we were a moment ago, every October 28th, Greeks around the world celebrate Ochi Day, the day Prime Minister Metaxas refused Mussolini's demands for basically what amounted to capitulation. Let us use Greece as ports for our navy. Let us have free passage through your territory. And he tells them, Ochi, famously, no. The actual letters are a little longer than that, but that's what we celebrate. And it's actually one of Greek's favorite words, as my wife will tell you. <laughs> you never want to do no, no. So that's the thing that made me think of Mussolini and of Tojo we mentioned briefly. These are faces that are not among the four, the big three and Hitler, on the cover of the year Germany lost the war. And so as I'm reading it, you delve into that. Italy's failure to conquer Greece, ultimately draws the Germans into a war that delays Operation Barbarossa, Hitler's long-dreamed-of Soviet invasion. 
Similarly, Japan fails to attack Russia, and Hitler's decision then is to back them up by declaring war on the U.S., whereas he could have said, well, how about helping me out a little bit against the Soviets, invade all the way out there in Kamchatka, tie up some Russian divisions. He doesn't do that. So he ends up really getting nothing for the reciprocal declaration of war on the U.S., How does Berlin's handling of its allies, the faces that are not on the cover of the book, contribute to his losing the war in 1941? I think it plays a big role, and it points up a bigger contrast also between the relationship between Hitler and his allies and, say, Churchill and Roosevelt. Churchill knew he needed Roosevelt's help. He nurtured that relationship in in every possible way. They had... Churchill and Roosevelt had established this back channel of letters and messages to bypass their own embassies, and, and in, in Roosevelt's case, particularly to bypass Joe Kennedy when he was ambassador in London, who was so negative on Britain's chances and did not like Churchill, and the feeling was mutual. While between Hitler and Mussolini and later Tojo, but particularly Hitler and Mussolini, there was constant distrust. In the beginning, When Hitler first took power, he admired Mussolini as he was rising to power. And after all, in the very beginning, in the early 20s, Mussolini was the first fascist success story, as it were, if you can put it that way. And people were looking at Hitler's rise to power and saying, is he almost a mini Mussolini? It's hard to imagine that now, but that's the way they they called him the German Mussolini for the beginning, right? Yeah, the German Mussolini. But then over time, Hitler, as he was with everyone, considered himself much more successful and much more important. And he disdained Mussolini. And one of the reasons why Mussolini attacked Greece and decided to put his troops on the march was he felt that Hitler was grabbing all the glory with his conquests. And he's got to show that Italian fascism is a is a vital force, too. And he sends his troops into Greece, which becomes, uh, as you know better than I do, quite a battle and does not go well. And then in April of 41, also in the Balkans, in, Yugos- in Yugoslavia, there's a coup in Serbia where a anti-German government takes over and Hitler is furious. And Also, Hitler allowed his personal emotions to overwhelm any logic on more than one occasion. And he launches this operation called Marita against the Balkans to basically clean up what he sees as the Italian's mess and to and to teach a lesson, particularly to Yugoslavia. And he succeeds, but it pushes back the whole plans for the invasion of the Soviet Union a full month. So by the time, originally they were going to invade the Soviet Union in May of 41. And the idea was Napoleon invaded in 1812 in late June, and there wasn't enough time to really achieve victory before the weather changed. Hitler felt, okay, this time we're going to do it a, a month earlier, but then when he gets so angered by the situation in the Balkans, he says, well, a month will make a difference. We'll push it back a month. But we have modern technology, a modern, a much more mechanized force. We'll achieve victory faster anyway. So what difference does it make? Well, of course, it made a very big difference. 
you can go to the Ohi Day Foundation, actually, O-X-I is how it's spelled in our language, and you can find a lot about that, the things that Stalin said about it after the war, Churchill said about it after the war, the invasion, and that delay, how much they valued that delay, which was a nice thing to see because the two of them didn't agree on much, even when they're forced into this alliance. You look at it and you say, in retrospect, Yes, that makes sense as a rash decision that he did that. But some of these other things, we look at Hitler and there's nothing too bad we can say about him. And he earns that. But when you're trying to look at the actual history, just boiling him down to the funny mustache and and the weird walk is not not exactly hard history. So we have to understand, I think, exactly how he came so close to world domination. And yet, Every week, it seems like there's a new story about some flaw or foible that he had, you know, that he was afraid of bats or whatever whatever it might be. How do you strike the right balance on that when you're trying to put those stories in perspective for readers? How do you address something for Hitler and say, well, he didn't do it for the reason just that he's nuts. It doesn't mean he's a good guy, but this is the reason behind it. And this was his logic that just wasn't borne out by reality. I think part of it I I already experienced when I was writing about Hitler's rise to power and a viewpoint of Americans who were in Germany in the 20s and 30s. We tend to see today those clips of Hitler almost frothing out the mouth, screaming, ranting, and say, how could any country have followed this man? But if you read the accounts of people who were there at the time, what they observed, you see that Hitler did not start his speeches that way. He didn't take over Germany by presenting himself as a madman. In fact, his early presentations would start very, very low-key, very much related to everyday issues about the collapse of the economy, about the lives of everyday Germans, the humiliation of defeat of World War I. They'd build to this crescendo. He had a real theatrical sense of timing and how to play an audience. And the same way during the war, In the initial stages, he seemed to know when to have that dramatic effect, when to convince people that there was no chance of, uh, you might as well just give up, as basically much of France did initially in 1940. And, And he was right. But then you have to see also where this goes wrong and how a leader who begins to be believe in his own infallibility basically believes his own propaganda is setting up for himself for a big fall and that's what you see in the process of of this year 1941 that i describe in my book is that more and more the flaws of that and the pitfalls of that become apparent and it become apparent not just to the outside world but to his own people around him even though they may be may fear uh, expressing that, but they begin to see that this man who seemed like he could do no wrong at the end of that process could do no right. And one, in a way, was a product of the other. As you say, the world changed. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't change with it. Yeah. And well, he also, he drove that change. He drove that ascent to power, the early victories, but he also drove the defeat. And that also gets to the core of something I have always felt in writing about such events and and such historical figures is that so much of this is about individual decisions, individual psychology. And as we said in the beginning, nothing is inevitable in history. It only looks that way in retrospect. 
events could have gone in an, any number of different ways throughout this period, but no more so than in 1941. And by that time, that's when Hitler made the fatal mistakes that determined the outcome of the war. I was thinking about the movie Downfall, as you talked about how Hitler starts out. And there's that performance by Bruno Ganz by the end, who was born in 1941. So that's an interesting little link to your book. Not much of one, but it is. <laughs> he was born in that <laughs> pivotal year. And here he goes on to give us this incredible portrayal of Hitler. It was a brilliant portrayal, I've got to say. And... In the beginning, as you're talking that he didn't start off as a madman, he's just trying to hire a secretary to do some typing for him. He calls her into the office and she's nervous and, oh my gosh, it's she just wants to serve the leader of her country. This is an, an honor. She goes in his office. She types up the article for him. I think he's there with his dogs. Very, very simple scene. She messes up because she's nervous. And of course, you're conditioned to think, okay, here it comes. He's just going to start screaming at her and maybe send her to a camp. He's going to go crazy. And no, he just pats her on the shoulder and says, well, okay, let's try again. This showed me in a way that I hadn't seen elsewhere how people could be seduced by it. Because in that situation, we are all in that secretary's shoes. We've all had the boss who freaks out on us because we screw up. And that little scene you see how he used the velvet glove first before taking it off and using the iron fist on people in other countries. But for the German people, he has an idea that he wants to do something with them. And that's how he convinces them that they're just better. And all that violence that you talked about and the degrading behavior towards the occupied countries, that's also a way to tell people you're better. Look at the things that you can do to other people. Nobody can stop you, of course, until they do. And that stopping begins in 1941. Yes, and uh, his, his, as you say, you get those firsthand testimonies of the people who worked with Hitler in the early days and how, when he wanted to be, how charming he would be and the descriptions you have of him. And even some of the American correspondents who, who write about their first impressions of him say, oh, yeah, maybe he isn't nearly as bad as the world is saying. He knew how to turn things on and off, but he progressively lost that ability as soon as things began to go wrong. Even Martin Luther King, his father, went over there and was really impressed with the Germans. They had a Baptist convention, and that's when he comes home and changes their names to honor Martin Luther. And that's the ultimate example of, gosh, if they can be fooled into thinking that Hitler was okay, but he was putting on a show and he was good at it. And it was important to him to have appearances to rally the German people. We talked about that with Nathan Stoltzfus in his book, Hitler's Compromises. Well, the subhead is coercion and consensus in Nazi Germany. So I think that looking at people and seeing how they did things, it's a much more interesting reading of history. And it's fairer to the people that suffered than just looking at it and saying, well, he was just a crazy person because he did have a strategy and he did bring a lot of people along with him that were not predisposed to evil, didn't know they were doing evil. Next thing they know, they're, they're out there. It slowly builds towards this year 1941 and then beyond where people from the outside can finally start to bring the guy down. Yeah. And I think there's a flip side to this whole thing. Was Hitler a monster? And this came up in, say, the trial of Adolf Eichmann in Jerusalem after he was kidnapped. And Hannah Arendt, the German-Jewish philosopher, said, no, he was not a monster. There's a danger in that theory that if you call Hitler and just the top henchmen monsters, in a way, you're letting everybody else off the hook. Or the monsters made me do it. 
In fact, if you look at what happened, there are many people become much more deeply implicated. And it's not enough to just say we had these crazy people at the top and particularly this one crazy person. And that explains everything. That's part of the explanation. But there's much more to this story than that. It's a title of the Twilight Zone episode, The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street, and the monsters turn out to be the people that live there, and all this terror and fear that's being spread in that great Rod Serling show, the, all the all that great black and white. That's actually one that he wrote that we interviewed Anne Serling, her book about her father. That was something he understood, and I only started to realize it as I read the book and as I've been fortunate to talk back and forth with Anne Serling about her father, he looked inside himself in a way that I think a lot of people don't, where we say, well, this was unique to Germany. This was unique to these people. Hitler was uniquely evil. And then we can feel fine and we don't have to look inside ourselves and say, would we have been marching with him? Would we have been saying, gosh, I'm just so desperate for somebody to fix this horrible, crippling depression? Am I just so full of bitterness and anger towards the Allies, specifically towards France for what they did to us? And then when he's bringing you victory after so long being downtrodden, how would you have felt? And I think it's it's so easy. And as you say, it does let them off the hook to just say, well, it was a, it was a demon in human form as much as we know that Hitler was. He couldn't have done it alone. He would have just still been a guy in a beer hall who had been screaming, maybe painting some horrible caricatures, although he didn't really paint people, right? He wasn't one of the reasons he got rejected from art school, as you mentioned. So I don't know, but he would just, what he would be doing, but he was just a, would be a regular person. Wouldn't be that threat. He had to have people that followed him. Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you briefly about a trip you took over this ground and how important it is to walk the area. You went to war sites next door, as you mentioned, when you said for us here in America, the war is over there. Somebody like your wife, who's from Poland, the war sites are next door. In the year Hitler lost the war, you describe the Russian veterans called searchers who you joined on their walks of the former front. Give us a little taste of what readers can expect to learn from them about the war's legacy in Russia. Well, first of all, the war doesn't feel far away in Russia. It never does. Part of it's also intentional. The regime maintains this whole fervor. Uh, it can often be a fuel for patriotism, for justifying all sorts of hardships after the war. That was certainly the Soviet regime used that for a long time. But a lot of it was for genuine reasons. Uh, of course, it did not go into the fact that Russian suffer suffering was magnified by Stalin, and many of the deaths in during World War II, Soviet deaths, would probably there be fewer of them if Stalin had both not made the mistakes and not instituted his own policy of terror that went on during the war. But that aside, there is a deep commitment in Russia by many people to try to honor those people who, who fell, and there were millions, by some estimates, it's anywhere between 20 and 26 million who people who died. And in those early battles, many people died anonymously. They were never buried. Many of them didn't even have dog tags because that was, many soldiers were superstitious. They felt if they put in a dog tag, that was sort of the signaling that they were about to die. And I went to Vyazma, which is this area west of, of Moscow, about 100 and I believe 30 miles, where some of the biggest battles took place when the, when the Germans were driving towards Moscow. And the Germans encircled a huge number, hundreds of thousands of Red Army troops who were totally lost, lost communication with headquarters. 
and many of them were massacred. There were huge losses. And I went into these woods and with with this group of, as you said, veterans, but they were young veterans. These were people who had served in the army in the last 10, 20 years, maybe. And they were would go in there with uh, metal detectors and would go looking for human remains and they would keep finding them and and where they did they would they would rebury them in a in a small cemetery that had grown in over 10 years to contain about 30,000 people just in this one small area we were exploring there were still unexploded grenades and there were sh- artillery shells and bits and pieces of jeeps and so forth and Going there camping, I remember we were there, I think it was late October. I could only imagine if you had been a Red Army soldier encircled by Germans there, and suddenly you know, there is firing coming from all sides, how terrifying it must have been, and how disorienting. It was hard to get your bearings even in peacetime there. To walk these fields and to, uh, the, these areas and to see how much still remained, I was there I did that camping trip with them several years ago, but it's still, you know, we're talking about maybe 65 years after the war to see all that. It's just, just astonishing. And it brings home, it's one of these young men said, I said, why do you do it? Well, you know, the, everything, the ground talks to me because everything we find tells you a story and even a, a, a part of a belt buckle of a soldier these shells, you know, that tells part of the story of what happened there. And I feel we owe it to them, but we also owe it to our own people to keep reminding them what happened and the dangers when things get to this point. And so as someone who spent my life as a reporter before I really transitioned to mostly writing books, I always wanted to be able to see things as much firsthand for myself as I could. And I try to apply the same principle when I'm writing books about historical events. You can't walk back into that history, but you can revisit the places where that history takes place. And often it gives you a very different picture of what you're trying to describe. Another example, when I was writing about the early days of Hitler, I went to Munich and found the original uh, two apartments where he lived in Munich in the early 20s, as first as a young man when he was, had very little money, where he only had one room in an apartment, and then in a much bigger, lavish apartment when his movement began to be well-funded and caught on, but before he took power. And immediately, it feels so much more real, and you feel you can write about it in a way that brings it home, and gives it an immediacy that your writing would not otherwise have when it's just some abstract place you're talking about. Well, Andrew Nagorski, we may never get to stand in Hitler's apartment. We never may never get to walk on those battlefields of the Eastern Front where Russia made its final stand. You really take us there with you, and thank you for that. In the year Germany lost the war, you write that by the end of 1941, Hitler had taken almost every wrong decision possible Thank you for giving our listeners a taste of the inspiring quest for a fuller picture of those wrong decisions and how the Second World War turned out the way that it did and how the efforts of 
our grandparents and parents to fight that war and to carry on the legacy that lives on in the Cold War with the former Soviet allies impacts us to this day. I wish you the best of luck with the book, and I hope that your next work of history gets on my desk just as quickly as possible because I enjoy it as much as I enjoy talking with you about it. Thank you very much, Dean. It's always a pleasure talking to you. The greatest, the wildest celebration of them all was in New York's Times Square. Never before or since has there been a crowd like this on the Great White Way. Two million people screamed their relation at the end of the most devastating war in recorded history. For 24 hours, the celebration went on, and not for a minute did it lag. Victory had come. Old glory waved over a happy land. Again, the book is The Year Germany Lost the War, 1941. As always... You can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there, or even navigate via the Amazon banner at the top of our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, that banner takes you through to Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra clicks, you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Andrew Nagorski for joining us and for sharing his view of the year Nazi Germany made choices on the battlefield and on the home front that led to its eventual defeat. Please remember to visit our guest at andrewnagorski.com and at Andrew Nagorski on Twitter. And let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, at our Facebook page, or you can follow us at The History Author Show on Instagram. As you may know, I like to share my passion for bourbon and other spirits. I picked the perfect spirit for this book, so check that photo out next time you're on Instagram, and feel free to give us a follow. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular. 